This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly, and we're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Brad Stone discusses his new book, The Upstarts, how Uber, Airbnb, and the killer companies of the new Silicon Valley are changing the world. Then PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot lists the top 20 publishers for 2016. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by NPD BookScan. What do you have on the nonfiction side, Mark? I have two. I have a total of two books. Uh, number one, we do have a new number one. Mm-hmm. This is by Rory Feek, who is well-known in Nashville, singer-songwriter. He also has uh, a lot of YouTube space. And the book is This Life I Live, One Man's Extraordinary, Ordinary Life, and the Woman Who Changed It Forever. So he's got a really strong following of people who... Uh, are not just country music listeners. So, uh, and that's at number one, and it's kind of showing it. The next one is another, well, this one is actually YouTube, they call her a, a tastemaker. My Life is Eva, The Struggle is Real by Eva Gutowski. And this one, she talks about her lifestyle. It's kind of a lifestyle and, and advice book on the ups and downs of life. And she has, she's a vlogger, so she uh, offers advice and very humorous and kind of fresh, they say, so uh, fresh and new, meaning. And so that's at number 19. I like how you say vlogger, like it's just an ordinary yeah. word. I, <laughs> right. I, I'm always certain that I'm going to stumble over it somehow. Yeah. Uh, well, we have a new number one in hardcover fiction as well. It's Lincoln and the Bardo by George Saunders. Uh, we say that it's a mesmerizing historical novel that's also a moving ghost story. Uh, and it's a Dante-esque tour through a Georgetown cemetery teeming with spirits. It takes place on a February night in 1862 when Abraham Lincoln visits the grave of his recently interred 11-year-old son. And there's so much going on in this book. Uh, you know, it's it's uh, almost 400 pages just over this one mm. night, but rich in detail. And our review says that these excerpts and Lincoln's anguished musings compose a collage-like portrait of a wartime president burdened by private and public grief, mourning his son's death as staggering battlefield reports test his and the nation's resolve. Um, it's a haunting American ballad that will inspire increased devotion among Saunders's admirers. So rave starred review. Um, everybody is loving this book and it is number one with a bullet with 25,000 copies sold according to Bookscan. And uh, down at number four is Heartbreak Hotel, an Alex mm. Delaware novel by Jonathan Kellerman. Delaware is an LA psychologist who specializes in evaluating the mental health of injured, neglected, or traumatized children. Um, we say this is a pretty so-so book in the series, the 32nd book. And in this case, he's actually working with an elderly person rather than with a child, a 99-year-old retired accountant who wants him to meet her and help her out. And uh, we say that the psychological insights that Alex typically displays are few and are barely relevant to the inquiry or its solution. So Kellerman kind of phoned that one in. Mm. 
Down at number 11 is Gunmetal Gray by Mark Greeny. We gave this a starred review, said it's an outstanding book, the sixth in uh, the Gray Man series. And uh, it's got a, it's another thriller series. And this one is about a manic court gentry who is an, a contract employee of the CIA who's joining an effort to locate one of the world's greatest computer hackers who's on the run after escaping from mainland China. And uh, there's a lot going on involving the Chinese, the Russians, and even a British spy. Uh, we say that the tension mounts as court chases fan all over East Asia and gray man fans will close the book happily fulfilled and eagerly awaiting his mm. next adventure. Uh, down at number 24 is Racing the Devil, an Inspector Ian Rutledge mystery by Charles Todd. This is the 19th book uh, featuring the Scotland Yard Inspector Ian Rutledge. And uh, we say it's very suspenseful. Uh, and uh, it starts in 1919 when a World War I veteran is nearly run off the road by another car while he's driving in the south of France. And uh, a series of car accidents and near misses uh, gets the inspector inspecting. And uh, we say that Todd uh, was actually the mother and son writing team of Caroline and Charles Todd, mm -hmm. maintains a high degree of tension throughout and populates the story with vivid characters bearing the external and internal scars of war. And finally, at number 25, the first time it's appeared on our list last week, it was uh, just below the cutoff at number 28. Mm -hmm. It's the second week out, and it's The Refugees by Viet Thanh Nguyen. And uh, we gave this a starred review. It said that uh, each searing tale in this follow-up to the Pulitzer winning The Sympathizer is a pressure cooker of unease, simmering with unresolved issues of memory and identity for the Vietnamese whose lives were disrupted by mm. the American War. Incredible collection of short fiction. Uh, and we say that uh, Wynne is not here to sympathize, always resent, never relent, as the anti-communist exiles proclaimed in The Sympathizer, but to challenge the experience of white America as the invisible norm. And uh, so lots happening in there, very rich. And I imagine the title alone, The Refugee, is going to be garnering some interest right. given right. recent political events. And that's what we have on the hardcover fiction list. All right. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox. And this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Brad Stone tells us how Uber and Airbnb came out of nowhere and where they're going next. We'll be right back. I'm Donna Freitas, author of The Happiness Effect, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got Brad Stone on the line. His new book is The Upstarts, How Uber, Airbnb, and the Killer Companies of the New Silicon Valley are Changing the World. Brad, I'm so glad you could join us. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. So um, this book is about two of the, the biggest sort of post-Google era companies, Uber and Airbnb. Um, and you begin the book with uh, President Obama's inauguration in 2009. Why did you pick that as a starting point? You know, it's when I when I set out to to tell a kind of twin biography of two different companies, really the two companies that emerged from this last wave in Silicon Valley, I was a little worried that would have that it would feel like two different books kind of artificially mashed together. But as I did the research, you know, there were a number of things that convinced me that that it was actually one story. Both the the challenges that each company was having, the fact that the CEOs were friends and learned a lot from each other, um, the fact that their personalities were similar in some ways and different in a lot of other ways. But then these moments of commonality that just took me totally by surprise. 
And one of them was the fact that the founders of both companies were kicking around anonymously at the start of uh, the Obama administration. And, and you know, Airbnb had, had just launched and was this site called Airbed and Breakfast. Uber at the time was only an idea in the mind of Garrett Camp, the uh, the original founder. And he was there with Travis Kalanick, his friend and now the CEO of Uber. And I just loved it that these two stories really start at the same place. And, you know, the last thing I'll say is, like, I, I knew I couldn't be comprehensive about either company because their stories are still unfolding. So I kind of decided to make it about, a you know, a period of time when these companies emerged. And, you know, what be- better bookends do you have than, you know, the inauguration of President Obama, where they started, and then really the inauguration of President Trump, where the book ends. So let's talk about these companies. And, and I want to start maybe with, as you had just mentioned, Brian Chesky, uh, Airbnb's CEO, how did he get that started? You had said it was originally air, you know, bed and breakfast, but um, right. Tell us about the beginning. Yeah, it's a humble beginning, and they've actually kind of exploited the the uh, the the indignities that they went through in that first year uh, to you know in their in their storytelling about the company. So they were uh, Brian, and then his his colleague Joe Gebbia were graduates from the Rhode Island School of Design. That is an unconventional uh, pedigree for any Silicon Valley entrepreneur. Investors will not be flocking to your door if you have a design degree. So they hit upon this idea of, uh, of Airbnb, staying in somebody's home, sleeping in their uh, extra room, or renting a place uh, you know, for, a, for a long weekend. And um, and they started talking about it in, in, at the beginning of 2008, and nobody was interested. Like, they had people walking out of investor meetings. In one of their moments of hilarious desperation, they made, a, uh, during the presidential campaign of 2008, they made breakfast cereals, one called Obama Owns and one called Captain McCain's, and used the boxes <laughs> as like a marketing gimmick. Uh, so they, they walked through the what they call the trough of sorrow, you know, trying to get this thing going. And through it all, they 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 had you know they had Silicon Valley dreams, right? They, it, it, you know, there was a mission around, I guess, this site, but it was really a mission about building something and being successful. And they idolized folks like Mark Zuckerberg. It was funny that when it really took off, uh, you know, and this is part of it they don't really like to talk about. Um, they had a third founder, Nate Blachorsik, who's in some ways the technical genius of the company. He was a, a prodigious uh, maker of spam tools, tools for spammers in high school and college. He's one of these kids who was like rich uh, before he even graduated college. And, you know, when he started to get really involved in Airbnb, he devised all these tools, we call them kind of growth hacking tools right now, and and got Airbnb going, attracted users uh, from Craigslist, uh, attracted hosts to list their their apartments and their homes on Airbnb. And that is when the the company really began to take off. So Chesky is a a very different person from Travis Kalanick of Uber, but um, you said that they were friends. It's true. I mean, I think, you know, there were very few other people that had the, you know, the context and the experience of what each of them was going through. Uh, And not just in terms of building a company and getting wealthy very quickly, but in terms of um, the obstacles that they were facing, very unusual. Like, you know, Bill Gates at Microsoft, he didn't didn't have to deal with a politician for the first 20 years. You know, Google, uh, Larry Page and Sergey Brin probably for the first 10 years. And, you know, Uber launches in San Francisco at the beginning of 2010, and they get served a cease and desist three months after they launch. Mm. Airbnb, Airbnb was basically illegal in, in their largest city, New York, um, mm. because of, of law, city uh, state laws, actually, that were designed to prevent illegal hotels. And so both these companies had a very unique kind of battle 
for a technology company. They had to they had to battle local regulators. They had to deal with very powerful entrenched industries, taxis and hotels, and they had to mobilize their customers to come out in support of what they were doing. And so they would go to dinner and they would kind of compare notes. I think in some respects they were both jealous of each other. You know, Uber could see Airbnb in the shiny halo of its of its brand, and Airbnb you know could look at Uber's skyrocketing valuation and probably be a little jealous. So. Yeah, they they learn from each other. Uh, they would they would come back from dinners, and and Brian would say of of Uber and Travis, you know, you know, we have to be we have to be tougher. And and Travis would say of Brian and Airbnb, oh, maybe we should be nicer. Uh, <laughs> so in some in some ways, yeah, they 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 learn from each other, and um, and it's interesting. You know, maybe one day we'll see them competing. So um, tell us what you mean by that competing, as in Airbnb branches out into you can use my car instead of you can use my house, or they, sir, they have. It's funny they have certainly considered that in the past whether they should move into other kinds of. Uh, of sharing economy businesses, and they haven't done it. But I guess what I mean is, um, you know, Airbnb is trying to be more than a travel company now. It's trying to facilitate all other parts of your trip. So in one day, do they, you know, one day do they want to, you know, have a mechanism for people to get a ride from the airport to their Airbnb mm-hmm. or, or to move around town when they're in the, in the city? I would suspect that one day they will do that. And who knows? Maybe they'll partner with an Uber, or maybe they'll partner with a Lyft, and we'll find that these two, two these two companies are no longer allies. So, you know, this is companies that, uh, this is eight years ago, the founding, uh, or the beginnings of them. And yet it seems like they just popped up last year. I mean, I know they didn't, but it seems like they're ubiquitous now. What happened to, to uh, get them to, to get our, that? To our lives, watch yes. our lives, watch <laughs> by in a, in a right, point. Exactly. <laughs> um, no, I, you're right, Mark. I mean, it feels like this thing happened very quickly. And, you know, listeners can't see the cover of the book. But on the on the jacket is a is a is a wave. It's actually derived from a famous Japanese painting of a of a tidal wave that people would probably recognize. And the reason that the the wave is on the cover and that I play with the metaphor of the great wave in the book is because these companies were really propelled forward by other things that were happening. You know, one was the proliferation of smartphones, and the fact is, like the iPhone. Was, wasn't launched that long ago. Mm. It came out in 2007, and the App Store was introduced in 2008. So that has happened in the blink of, a, of an instant. You know, we, all, we are now running our lives through these devices in our pockets. Um, the GPS, broadband wireless, the fact that you, know, there's, you, know, you can get a pretty good connection. Of course, not, not perfect, but pretty good. Um, Facebook identity, the fact that the, inter- we, the Internet now sort of knows who we are in large part because of Facebook. Well, that turned out to be important for these companies because we were they were asking us to do something that our mothers told us never to do, which is get into a stranger's car or walk into a stranger's <laughs> home. You probably couldn't do that unless there was some degree of trust on the Internet. So these were the underlying things that pr- propelled these companies forward. And, you know, you, you, I mean, other folks tried to build an Uber and tried to build an Airbnb years before. It took a good deal of timing. And and all you know, and also I should say, a, a probably a particular kind of entrepreneur uh, to make these businesses possible. So now here we are, eight years later. Trump has been in the office for just over a month. How are these companies faring now? Well, uh, you know, folks who uh, you know who, who who read the business pages probably you know have some idea that things have been a little turbulent for Uber. Um, but let's let's put that aside for one second, and I'll give you the broad answer, which is I, I think their 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 businesses are doing quite well. I mean, you know, 
Uber is valued at $70 billion. It's it's breathtaking for a company that is only really uh, seven years old. Airbnb is is a little bit over $30 billion. Um, you know, they're engaged in a major expansion of trying to do things other than just sharing home, but facilitating other parts of, of your trip. Um, Uber is making a large investment in uh, in driverless cars, um, uh, and yet uh, the, the the reputations of both companies. It's been in, interesting juxtaposition just in the last couple of months that Donald Trump has been in office. Um, all of the tech industry reacted quite badly to, uh, quite negatively, I should say, to the to the administration's executive order on on immigration. And you know, Airbnb ran an ad during the Super Bowl, pledging uh, kind of openness. It, it promised to give housing uh, to uh, to any refugees that were caught up in the temporary refugee ban. And you know, I think it's kind of queered. I think it's fared quite well uh, over the last few months, um, and managed perhaps to to you know define a little more sharply its brand and its reputation. So uh, an up arrow for Airbnb, and now we we turn to Uber, uh, which is a little bit of the opposite situation uh, for reasons partly of its own making and partly not. You know, the first uh, the first kind of tornado I got caught up in. Uh, was around Travis Kalanick, the CEO's participation on the on the on the President Trump's board of advisors, and you know his customers and his employees just hated that. I mean, this is a San Francisco business; um, its 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 customers are in major cities, typically blue leaning, and you know he was kind of drummed out of the president's advisory board and lost a bunch of customers as a result. Um, and now, more recently, Uber is caught in the downdraft of just some truly kind of horrific news about the treatment of its employees, sexism, and the lack of diversity within the company. Uh, folks might have seen a blog post by a former employee named uh, Susan Fowler, who, who wrote about you know, not only being uh, indecently propositioned by her boss, but, but then wrote that uh, the the Uber Human Resources Department hadn't done anything about it. It's really jaw dropping. You can't defend it. It's you know it's indicative of of long standing problems in Silicon Valley, really, and just you know what women have to endure in a culture that is heavily tilted towards uh, towards boys and the boys club. So, yeah, Uber is working through that right now. They appointed Eric Holder, a for, the former Attorney General, to investigate claims of sexism at Uber. And they've got a long way to go to, to repair the damage to the to their reputation that has been inflicted on on them this week. Yeah, and also at one point they had brought in Ariana Huffington to oversee the uh, the human resources aspect of yeah. it, or at yeah, least she's to advise. On their board yeah. and she's working with uh, with Eric Holder, and, and and in fact, some people feel like it's not enough of a neutral uh, investigation because she is involved in it and she's on the board. And so, so you've got two companies, two of these companies. At, at some point, I, in a minute, I want to go talk about the, the the other companies that are kind of part of this wave. Uh, but with these two, and especially now, you had said that Airbnb, they really haven't had the political problems uh, or, or kind of morale issues that uh, Uber has. And it seems like Uber has had these problems. You know, we've, we've been hearing about them for a while. What, what do you think it is with Uber? I mean, is it the system? Or is it the structure, or the personalities? I mean, it's a it's a good question, Mark. And and I w- I'd say this, you know, that that to do what Uber did in such a short amount of time took a certain personality, a certain pugnacious character, you know, because you had not only taxi companies and and flat footed regulators, but you know, you had like let's just say. Uh, 
I'll say obliquely, you know, the taxi industry is not the, you know, is somewhat known for its uh, steely friends, right? So you had to, <laughs> you had to have somebody come into some of these cities, bowl over the rules, you know, talk, played hardball with regulators, marshal political coalitions of, of customers, get people to come out and, and fight. And, and Uber won a lot of these battles because Travis Kalanick was a ferocious CEO. And, you know, he would, I have scenes in my book of him going into meetings with, with regulators and like, you know, moving his chair so that his back was sort of facing them, right? This mm. is like, wow. he's a jerk. He's a jerk, right? You know, we, and that's his reputation. It's not inaccurate. He's gruff and he had to learn how to become a, he's still learning how to become a mature leader. So I think that part of the reasons why Uber was successful are part of the reasons why it's having problems now, you know, like, you know, very pugnacious, mathematically oriented, not a really a people person, and, um, you know, and now we follow the line to today and we see that Uber has grown very quickly and and hasn't invested in some of the softer sides of a corporation like human resources. Right. They may have been late. It appears they were in developing a professional human resources organization. That doesn't surprise me. You know, the, it, 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 it would seem like Travis would probably make much more of an investment in his engineering staff or his business crew raising the money that he has had to raise. So. Yeah, I think that the reasons that Uber is successful are the reasons that it's having problems today. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Brad Stone, author of The Upstarts. So give us a little sense, since we're talking about these companies and their internal issues, what the work environment is like at, at both of them, if you were able to get a sense of that while you were researching. Yeah, no, I spent a lot of time at both companies, and, and they couldn't be more different the atmosphere inside the companies even though they're like a mile apart they're in san francisco um you know airbnb has this sort of temple of a of a headquarters um that is filled with like inspirational sayings to their mission and they have conference rooms uh you know that are styled after actual airbnbs around the world it's a playful atmosphere um it's you know it's a, a beautiful headquarters they spent like a hundred million dollars to renovate an old pencil factory uh, and yet, you know, um, I would say it's that that atmosphere might be a little bit misleading because it's a pro- it's a rapidly professionalizing company um, that's probably preparing for an IPO. And so, you know, while, while this might be might have been a little more playful in the early years where, you know, I have scenes early on where like they were throwing birthday parties for their dogs, which they brought to work. Um, now it's it's business, you know, and, and the departments have to have to uh, do, uh, you know, profit and loss statements, and there's a lot of accountability. So uh, that's what it kind of looks and feels like at Airbnb. I think, though, that, like, you can't assume that they're not taking themselves seriously. And now we go to Uber, uh, a mile away, you know, mood-lit offices, lots of dark wood um, and leather sofas. People working their tails off, like, very much a, a work hard around the clock kind of culture. Um, and marked by, I would say, what seems to me to be a little bit of chaos. You know, they grew from 500 employees to 10,000 employees in like three years. I mean, just imagine that. And so, you know, as a result, lots of reorganizations, 
a little bit of maybe sagging morale in some departments. And and then I think an employee base that's a little fatigued with the constant criticism. So I, I think they're having a little bit of a tough time over there. Yeah, and um, certainly what's been happening now um, after uh, the piece on sexual harassment there uh, has led to a lot of employees turning in their resignations, or at least that's the rumor. I don't know. I mean, I think that there has been some turnover, and, and it's hard to separate. You know, and I will say as a sort of note of caution, like, you know, I never like to judge companies anecdotally. You know, anecdotes about corporate culture can tell us some things. But for every unhappy person you can find at an Uber or at a company like Amazon, you know, you find other people that have been there for a long time and believe they do great work and are quite invested in it. So, you know, the the turnover at startups can be high. And look, in San Francisco, there's lots of other opportunities, Mm -hmm. uh, particularly, you know, folks have kept their stock. But um, I don't know. I'm sort of unwilling to say that the that the you know that the walls are burning down around them right now. Um, I think you know they've got to get through what are going to be a tough couple of weeks. So, just pulling back a little bit, give us a little lay of the land. I mean, you live in San Francisco. You've been covering Silicon Valley for for over a decade. Um, tell us how things have changed. Um, you know, I, I I think of San Francisco now being inhabited by mostly. 20-something-year-old men. <laughs> uh, uh, that's a little bit... Uh, that's uh, not totally true. Um, it has changed, though. It has changed, Mark, since I moved out here uh, after our Columbia days in the 90s in New York. Um, it... Uh, you know, but but it's still like a it's still a city buzzing with vibrancy and different. You know, it's like San Francisco. The old old parts of the city never go away. They just kind of get layered on top of. And you still it's still a quirky city. You know, there's still neighborhoods like uh, the Hate and and Golden Gate Park that re- retain their character. Um, it's a city that is is buzzing with new construction, as is Seattle right now and some other West Coast cities. Um, and, and you've got this, this tech community, but you also have old, older San Francisco that resents the heck out of it. Um, and, you know, protests, new construction, there's a lot of like nimbyism in the city, you know, that hated for years, the buses that would bring, uh, engineers down to, uh, Google and Apple and Facebook. So it's in some ways it's a city, you know, benefiting from the tech boom. And then in other ways, a city that's at war with it, but. Um, the one thing I will say that again, like going back to anecdotes, uh, and, and and my priority, my my you know, I prefer to look at data. One one thing that's significant is that apparently San Francisco has like the lowest percentage per capita of children of any major American city, and that, that does tell us a lot about how inhospitable it has become to families. Um, you know, in part probably because prices have soared, um, and and the schools still aren't quite good. So it, it, it's a city with uh, you know. A lot of dynamism, but some conflict as well. So tell us a little bit about these other companies that are either riding the wave or, or helping build momentum. Right. Yeah, because I do. I could do it in the subtitle. call it the killer companies of the new Silicon Valley. <laughs> right. Uh, and, um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, some some other ones that are featured in the book are, are Lyft, obviously, which you cannot dismiss, which was a you know, major influence on Uber um, and in some ways really pioneered the idea of ride sharing or, you know, kind of anyone without a chauffeur's license being able to pick people up in their car. And Uber copied Lyft with a, a service called UberX. 
Uh, and then you've got, I, I spend a bit of time in the book talking about the incredible journey of a company called Didi in Beijing. They're the kind of Uber of China. Uber tried to unseat them and, and, and Didi ended up kind of prevailing. They're, I would say they're an upstart as well. Um, and, uh, you know, and then there's all these kind of a, uh, accompanying uh, startups who, who try to do things like an Uber or like an Airbnb and haven't had as much success. There are companies in the on-demand food delivery world and, you know, you, you can find, you, you know, you can get you can get tech startups to clean your laundry here, you know, if you have the right app. So but I, I would say that when you look at this sort of phase in Silicon Valley, that it is really Uber and Airbnb with Lyft as a close runner-up that have established themselves as being as being the leaders. So this is your third book, following the Everything Store, Jeff Bezos and the Age of Amazon. Um, what leads you to take an idea and turn it into a book? Do they start out as articles, or do you just something pops into your head and you're like, "There's a book in that." Yeah, the the Amazon book was really a great story, and it got a great response. And afterwards, I was I was looking for something similar, but how, how can you how can you match the story of Amazon? You really can't. And I, I, I actually set off to try to do a kind of mosaic of Silicon Valley. I was thinking something along the lines of, of this town by Mark Leibovich, but uh, for Silicon Valley. And as I started on it in 2014, you know, Uber and Airbnb were going to be woven into this mosaic, but they just kind of took off and started commanding more more of my time and 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 just so interesting like you know they're leaving conflict and controversy in their wake of it as they spread around the world and as an author that's ultimately what you want a great story and so you know, kind of over the course of writing the book i honed in on those two threads so this didn't come out of uh from an article or, or and and i i have a feeling that jeff bezos book came out of your of your own research that you were reporting for uh was it bloomberg at the time it was Bloomberg, and then before that, the New York Times. Right. And, you know, it's it's like been a, it's a privilege to be in Silicon Valley and to watch all these companies. And so I I was writing about Uber and Airbnb for Business Week magazine. And so you know, like having that perch and that lens, it you know, it, it it's a real help when you're you know when your side project matches up with your day job. And so you know, I I was able to like kind of see that these companies were growing, that investors were piling in, the CEOs were widely admired, um, you know, and 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 yeah, I, I kind of parceled out uh, little parts of the book as stories along the way, oh, very much like I did with uh, with the Amazon book. So so, Brad, you you know, you're you're talking. You've got this full time job. You know, you're the senior executive editor of you know, global technology for Bloomberg News. Yeah. But how, how do you? Uh, uh, how do you juggle your writing uh, and work? And you you also have kids. Yeah, it's not a pretty picture, Mark. In fact, <laughs> you, you know, since since we went to college together, you know, you you remember my uh, my hair was like a nice sh- uh, shade of brown, and now it's totally gray. So I'm not going to say it, it's seamless. It's it's uh, there's a little bit of stress involved and anxiety, but you know what? It just helps when like the stories are good. And I would, I would say, I would suggest that like no story has been better than the ones uh, in Silicon Valley. You know, um, it, you know, going back to what we were saying before, like our world has changed in an instant. You know, and it's and obviously everything in Washington D.C. is of great importance. Um, but you know, the what, the big reasons why the world changed over the last eight years was in part because of smartphones and these internet companies and allowing us to share resources and do different things and you know they've changed these two companies that i read about in the upstairs have changed cities like it's changed the way we get around and 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 what they're what they're after 
next could be even more significant in terms of like autonomous cars and, and whatnot. So I don't know. It's, it's like it, it becomes sort of a privilege to, to write these things when um, you can get access to the major players and when the stories are good, right? Where you're never like looking at the blank page and thinking, what's next? Like what's next is like, what, what, what happened next in the story? What was the next fight they had to get through? Or what was the next near death experience? It becomes kind of very easy uh, you know, when you're following a, a chronology that in, a, in and of itself is captivating. So I, I was uh, appreciating the pun of your title that the upstarts are startups. Um, and we think of these companies still as, as very young and as being invested in by others. Um, but you mentioned that Uber is now doing its own investing in these driverless cars. And um, what are these companies doing with the power that they've acquired? Right. And by the way, the title, the upstarts, like I really like the, the double meaning because, you know, upstarts is like a new business or somebody new to the scene. But there's also a little bit of a negative connotation, right? Mm-hmm. That, that, right. that if you're an upstart, you don't have sufficient respect for established authority. And that certainly fits as well because neither of these companies really did. Um, and in, term, in terms of the future and, and how they're marshalling their power right now, I think it's a great question because, you know, we expect something from these companies, uh, certainly a little degree of humility uh, when they amass so much power and wealth. Um, you want to be sure that if they are architecting our future, they're, you know, they're doing it in a way that's kind of equitable. Um, and, and yet I would argue that with Uber, you know, they've made mistakes in that regard. When, when Travis Kalanick, the CEO of Uber, started talking about driverless cars, you know, which will be a disaster for the large percentage of you know americans who make a living driving he kind of did it cavalierly and Mm -hmm. you know and that's a big mistake because people have anxiety about the future you know we are not so sure that we want to embrace a world where robots are taking our jobs uh, naturally and so i think they have had to learn um you know to to be a little more careful and to speak more humbly the problem is is that you know they their uber is engaged in a race to you know to to invent the future with Google and Tesla and, and um, you know, all the, the companies in Detroit, GM and Ford. And so they're, they're trying to invest in, in robotic cars and they're trying to talk about it in a way that conveys kind of optimism. At the same time, they're like, it's existential for them because they've got to get there first. And that's always the, the challenge for tech companies. It's like they're super competitive on the one hand and on the other hand, they're telling, uh, they're telling the rest of the world, don't worry trust them mm. and you know we can't we can't trust them right now like they they really are making our future and we have to kind of keep our eye on them and make sure they're fulfilling their own promises so um do you have any sense of whether there are other companies that are coming up in their wake that are being lifted by their wave that we might be talking about 10 years from now or is it uh, a little early to tell well to get i mean the, the thing that i will never claim i will i never claimed it to know what's coming next. Like I'm constantly surprised and, you know, honestly, like, you know, Snapchat is about to go public or maybe by the time this airs, it will have gone public. And if you had asked me like a year ago what their prospects were, I would have gotten it totally wrong because I don't even understand, I don't even understand how to use Snapchat. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I know you guys are probably big users. Um, (laughs) But not me. So I don't really, I don't really know. I do. There's certain things that interest me. Like, the Amazon Echo and the idea that like my kids are now talking to a computer is pretty compelling. I think that it will be uh, those kinds of things will be a platform. And, you know, who knows, maybe we'll be like talking to our computers at work right now or talking to our cars. Wouldn't that be great as you're driving to say, Hey, 
you know, um, Siri, you know, play uh, David Bowie. Like I can see, you know, in some cases that's possible already. And I think, I think we're, we're going to be moving into that world very, very quickly. Yeah, I have uh, 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 someone just gave me a gift of Google Home, which uh, okay. my kids just automatically knew how to talk to and <laughs> to bring up. And now I'm talking to this device. And yes, we have a car that I can talk to and uh, have them play music, have have them change channels. It's really it's really incredible. <laughs> Well, it's certainly going to be very interesting to see where these things go. And, uh, and of course, in the short term, we'll all be keeping an eye on Uber. I feel like Airbnb has pretty much kept its nose clean recently. But, of course, the next scandal could always be around the corner. Well, and, and the, one, the, one, the one thing that people in at least some cities like New York will know is that they are having more of a regulatory problem mm-hmm. than Uber is right now in terms of cities wanting to, to limit it or outlaw it. And so Airbnb, yes, they've kept their nose clean, but they are not out of the woods yet in terms of convincing you know, governments that uh, they should allow this in their cities. Well, we'll definitely look forward to your book in 10 years, seeing uh, what, what the upstarts did in that intervening time. The sequel. Yeah. Thank you, guys. (laughs) We've been talking with Brad Stone. You can find his book, The Upstarts, in stores right now. Brad, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot talks about the top 20 book publishers. Stay tuned. This is Daniel Jose Older, author of the Bone Street Roomba series and the Shadow Shaper series, and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors, and today PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot is here to tell us all about the top 20 book publishers. Hello, Jim. Hey, Mark. How are you, Rose? I'm doing very well, thank you. How are you? Not too bad. Lovely day here in New York. Um, Very glad to have you on the show with us again. So um, everybody knows more or less who the big five publishers are. Uh, Used to be the big six before the Penguin Random House merger. Um, But uh, you've written a piece on what comes after number five. So tell us a little bit about this. Yeah, right, right, Rose, exactly that. Yeah, as you said, most people know who the big five are. Penguin Random House is number one. You know, that's a given. Harper Collins has been number two for quite a while. Then we have Simon and Schuster, Hachette, and McMillan. So it was always a mystery, you know, within industry circles themselves to some degree about who is number six. So using BookScan, which measures, you know, retail sales uh, made through about 85% of all retail channels and accounts for print units only, uh, Scholastic came in number six. Hmm. And um, is Scholastic still entirely children's publishing? Well, actually, no. That's a good point. What this measures is just their trade sales. Uh, Scholastic is by far the largest book club and book fair company uh, for children's books into the schools. Um, And they do some other things as well. But this just measures their trade sales, which for last year, 2016, were over $300 million dollars. So um, if those book club and book fair sales were factored in, uh, they would have an even more substantial claim to that number six spot. Right, right, right. But really, we're really looking at um, what, how they would compete with the other trade publishers hmm. um, you know, to kind of compare apples to apples. 
So, and one thing that really helped them last year, of course, was uh, Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, which uh, sold the most print units. I think something we talked about here a little bit before. You know, almost four and a half million units were sold through wow. the BookScan outlets, and that was by far the biggest book book of the year um, for any publisher. And they also had uh, some other. Uh, Potter-related titles did very well, and they uh, hit it big with uh, Babysitters uh, Club Graphics, which was uh, some graphic novels they did in the Babysitters uh, line. So it was, it was, a, it was a great year for them. And then so in seventh place, we have another one that I don't think one would necessarily consider in seventh place. What is it? Right, right, right. It's Disney Publishing Worldwide. And again, another children's publisher and another one that did um, – very well with some from some newer titles such as Star Wars so they were a big beneficiary of the interest in the in the film since the new movie came out last year and they had a lot of tie-ins I think they had six tie-ins or so right to that movie and then they had um, Rick Reardon of course is one of their perennial bestsellers and he he hit the bestseller list um, I think with also six books of uh, various kinds. So it was it was a great year for them. And uh, you bring up an interesting point because children's publishers did do uh, very well on this. We, we already mentioned two. Candlewick mm-hmm. uh, was down a little bit on the list uh, somewhere in the mid-teens. But, you know, they're uh, children's publishers only and um, they hit pretty well too. And it seems like across the board, though, even you know, even in the big houses, that is the, the, the there's still a large growth in children's books last year. Yeah, children's did pretty well, um, and we also see <laughs> some surprises. Uh, Sterling, which is owned by Barnes and Noble, um, and Dover, uh, mm. which is actually now owned by a company that used to be R. R. Donnelly. Mm. And what those two companies have in uh, common is they are both. Uh, major publishers of adult coloring books. Yes, indeed. Right. And so while, you know, I, I know we talked about this uh, a little while ago, while the adult coloring books did not do quite as well as they had in 2015, they were still strong enough last year to put these companies, you know, in the top 20. That's impressive. It's fun to look at. Um, you know, again, it's not dollar sales, so it's not perfect. And I know... Uh, We'll get a few complaints from people wondering where they were. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it measures unit sales made through, you know, the more traditional um, retail outlets. So it doesn't include things like gift stores and things like that. I mean, other companies that are on the list here, Workman, right. um, you know, they, and they also, but they do a lot of stuff through gift stores, too. So maybe their ranking is a little lower than it would have been. And, you know, Sterling, as we said, is Barnes & Noble. And they they go to some other outlets as well. And what we also found, I think that some other people in the industry will find interesting, is that two religious publishers were number 19 and number 20. And I think sometimes we overlook the fact, you know, how popular um, religious books can be. Uh, Broadman and Holman, for instance, they were in 19th spot, and they had a book that sold over 200,000, uh, sorry, over 300,000 units last year, Fervent. Um, and they also had a title, The Battle Plan for Prayer, that sold over 157,000 copies. So that's, that's pretty impressive stuff. And what was the other religious, uh, religious publisher? 
Tyndale Publishers. Mm. Um, they had they no had no real outstanding um, title, but they had a number of ones that you know sold in the fifty thousand to hundred thousand dollar range, and enough to get it up there on the. Um, on the top 20 list. Well, and even looking weekly as we do at the uh, bestseller list, we do see, uh, as you just said, religious books pop up on there more frequently than I recall before, but even like, you know, Thomas Nelson is another one that makes appearances. Right. Yeah. Nelson, you know, is part of Harper Collins. So, um, but they're wrapped up into there. So, and they certainly, uh, have given a boost to Collins. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. So, um, so it seems like the uh, the top twenty they'll 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 change year by year, uh, depending on which books they you know they're they're you know which books really hit. Yeah, I think that's right. It'll be interesting to see without a Harry Potter if there won't be. I don't think there'll be a new one, but you never can tell with J.K. Rowling. Right. <laughs> right, um, right. Without without uh, there won't be a four point four million right. copy seller for them next year. So it'll be interesting to see how if they can maintain number six spot. Um, or, you know, who might rise up. I mean, Houghton Mifflin, we didn't mention yet. They were number eight, you know, and we actually have numbers for them. You know, their sales are about $166 million in, um, in 2016, which puts them well below Scholastic at the moment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but if, uh, you know, again, taking out Potter, uh, maybe Houghton can, can dash up the ranking next year. Well, it sounds like it's uh, going to be worth keeping an eye on. Were there any other big surprises uh, down that top 20 list? You know, I think, I, I just think people will find it interesting who's actually there. I, I, I don't know how much people stop and think about it too much, but, uh, you know, Kensington was there, is there. Um, I was wondering know, about that. Uh, they, they, they like to build themselves as the largest um, Independent publisher, you know, big and mass market paperback. I know, I know you know them well. Yeah, Rose. they they do a ton of romances, so I I cover them very frequently. And when you were talking about inspirational titles, I was thinking of the the Amish romances, for example, that I get from Kensington, which are very very popular. Right. Sure. Yeah. And you know, uh, Chronicle Books is also on the list. Um, you know, so probably the biggest West Coast publisher there is. And they do a lot of gift stuff, too. So, I mean, their overall sales are probably higher, but, um, you know, they still, they, still made the, they still made the top 20. Mm. Well, it sounds like an interesting exercise. What led you to put this list together? Well, because I've been wondering number <laughs> six would be. <laughs> and not to get too technical about it, uh... You know, we, we do have a deal with BookScan, but under the terms that they have with their providers, they re- really didn't want to disclose the market share. Mm-hmm. Um, so we don't have market share numbers. We just have the numbers this year. So that was the compromise we reached. And I think last, late last year we talked about who the top 20 children's publishers were. So uh, we followed up with that. And since... Actually, everybody got, I think, a good response to that ranking. And it was actually one of the more interesting things was the publishers themselves didn't know where, um, where they were ranking, especially the ones out of the big five. Because right. I did talk to Sourcebooks, actually, as number 10 uh, on this list. And I had 
mentioned that to them uh, the other day, and they didn't know they were there. Mm. <laughs> and they're very excited. So, so this is uh, yeah, this this is like a bestseller list, but for publishers. I'm trying to imagine how they can use it to to market themselves. Yeah, you know, we're number right. sixteen on a big banner over their booth at Book Expo. Or... Yeah, something like that. So, but again, it's something to to chew over. And like I said, since it's not sales, uh, I'm sure a couple of people will be wondering where they were. But uh, we have to work with the data we have. Absolutely. Well, I think as long as we acknowledge that uh, you know, any any data is going to be limited necessarily, and as long as we're using the same methods to calculate it all the way through, uh, I don't think that's too much of an issue. I hope you're right, Rose. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you if you get I, any, I certainly subscribe to that theory. <laughs> if you if you get any nastygrams, you can come back on the show and read them to our to our audience. I'm, I'm sure they'll be delighted uh, to hear the kind of. Share. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jim, thank you very much for coming on the show and telling us all about this, and uh, we'll look for the write up in next week's issue. All right, thanks a lot. And now a final word from our sponsors. Beyond the headlines, beyond the routine, beyond the book, I'm Chris Keneally, host of Copyright Clearance and his podcast series, Beyond the Book. And I'm Andrew Albany, senior writer at Publishers Weekly. Join us each Friday for a publishing news week in review podcast unlike any other. Learn all the breaking news and catch the best analysis on developments in the book trade, copyright law, and much more. You already know business as usual. Now go Beyond the Book. Listen to the free series and subscribe at beyondthebook.com. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another deep dive author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcast on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 